My next guest film career started in the early 1980s and his breakout role was terrifying. I'm talking about Malachi in Stephen King's Children of the Corn. After that, he had a string of successful films with titles such as Memphis Belle, Sweet Home Alabama, The Burbs, Back to the Future, Colours and Faster. After the break, I'm joined by Courtney Gaines to discuss his more than 40-year career in Hollywood. Up next, Mr. Courtney Gaines. Courtney, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Yeah, yeah, good seeing you. So um, let's dive straight in. We're, well, when this is broadcast, we're going to be coming up for Halloween. Yeah. And I wondered, as you know, you got your career started in one such a memorable role. Are you a fan of the horror genre? You know, people ask that question, and I always say, I, I would say, I'm not really a big fan of horror, but horror is a big fan of me. <laughs> um, I'm not into violence. That's the bottom line. I'm not into blood and guts, you know? And right. Particularly the torture porn ones really bother me because I don't like the idea of people getting off on hurting others, you know? That sort of bothers me. But the bottom line is a good story is a good story. The story is good. I don't really care what the genre is. I care about a good role and a good story, ultimately. Right, right, right. And is there, are there any films that you found particularly scary? Well, yes. The classic uh, answer is, you know, when I was a kid, like 10 years old, I went and saw Exorcist in a movie theater. And, you know, there had been no special effects like that level before. That that did me in. Like, I couldn't sleep that night. You know, every time I closed my eyes, I'd see her glowy eyes. And that, that one really, really got me. That's the, that's the most scared I'd ever been in a movie, for sure. But then years later, I saw it again when I was like a teenager and was able to laugh more and, you know, see it in a new light, you know, so that helped. But I think it's, a, I think it's an excellent film, not just a horror film. I think that's just an excellent film. It, yeah I mean I didn't see it when it first came out and I think I'd seen it around about five or six year, years later in the movie theater and I remember and I thought well, of course by that stage I'd heard about it I'd seen the clips I knew what I was expecting and the thing I found most terrifying is there is a moment where a chest of drawers moves across the room by itself I, I, I don't yeah. know why that just completely <laughs> freaked me out um but yeah no, I can understand yeah, why I think that's the classic answer though but I mean I think you know, <laughs> it probably is the most famous horror movie ever made probably oh yeah no absolutely and, and it's, of course for me as an English person it blows my mind that 10-year-olds were allowed to go into a cinema to see The Exorcist. It's, it's true. The only reason I was allowed is there was this, in this neighborhood I lived in, there was this old theater, literally called the Hong Kong Theater, and for like $1.25, they would show, you could sneak, you could get in a movie, and and it was like, you know, it wasn't like the first run, it was like second run or third right. run or whatever, and they let you into anything. And that's how I discovered Bruce Lee movies, because they wouldn't let me into those either. And, uh, you know, Enter the Dragon and Fist of Fury. And he's, he's one of my heroes. Matter of fact, I'm wearing a Bruce Lee shirt, but you can't really see it. I was going to wear it so I could represent, you know. <laughs> it's a good job. Bruce Lee, an amazing. I mean, the Enter the Dragon, 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 Enter the Dragon is one of my favorite films, that whole yeah, mirror it's, sequence. It's and... definitely on one of my top films, too. It's, and 
I don't, I'm not the kind of person who likes to listen to music, same song over and over again, or see the same movie over again. I'm just not that way. I can see, you know, maybe again over time, but if Enter the Dragon's on, I'll just stop and watch it. If I'm clicking and it's there, I'll just watch it. Because oh, it just really? has that much of a hold on me. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, moving on from that, let's go back to your career in acting. What kicked off your interest in acting? Yeah. So, um, well, first off, I say it's in my blood. My my grand my grandfather, who I didn't know, but on my on my father's side, w- was a bit actor and a hoofer and a piano player, and so there was that on that side. And then my mother uh, uh, was in the USO when she was like 13, 14 years old, and went to like a fame school in Los Angeles, traveled and entertained troops. She looked like thirteen, going on like eighteen, though, you know, and. Um, but so she was, so she'd done it. She had her own dance studio at one point when she was like 18. And so it was in my blood. And then she stopped it all and got married because that back then that's what she did. But so it was, you know, she had done, you know, chorus lines and films. And so it was in my blood and I grew up in Los Angeles. So I was around it. So there was a lot, there was a lot already there, but um, I did uh, the first play I ever did in grammar school was uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And I played the prince. And when I came out there and saved her and the crowd went, <gasps> you know, I was hooked. I was hooked, you know, I was, I hit the, something about hitting the boards, I felt when I walked out there, you know, there's nerves before you go on, but when you, as soon as you step on, there's something, I don't know, there's some familiar place it felt like, you know, Um, felt like home in some way, and yeah, from that point on, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, and I would tell everybody, and they would listen, and very few believed, and, and I would tell them, you'll see one day, and, and here we are. Wow, well, you remind me, I've always said that the stage is one of the safest places in the world, as mm. far as I'm concerned, because mm. you know what's about to happen. You know what everyone mm. else is, because you know, as long as you can remember your own lines, you feel comfortable. Correct. But I always just felt incredibly safe on That's a stage. Interesting. That's interesting. Maybe that is part of what it's about. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, cool. All right. So, and did you train at that age? Did, when did you start training? Yeah, so so at that point I, I was definitely articulating that's what I wanted to do, and my mom somehow felt even though she she was the one who chose to, to be a childhood performer or child performer, I guess you could say she was about you know, ten years old, but she sort of wanted to keep me out of it for a while. She did, you know, she she you know her uh, she she seemed that I would lose my childhood in some way, and I just kept bugging her, like I kept bugging her. Finally, I was about thirteen. She uh, she got me in class, and, right. Uh, I did not like the class at all. It was, I was, you know, I was a kid who grew up in, you know, tough neighborhoods in Los Angeles. And, and this was like, you know, people wearing tights and tap dancing. And, and I was just like, this is not what I meant, you know, and I was about to quit. I was going to quit. I went there like two, three times. I didn't fit in with anybody there at all. I felt. And as I was getting ready to quit, this guy stopped us on the street as we were leaving the class. And uh, his name is Virgil Fry. And he was an actor his daughter went on to be pretty famous. So they moon fry, play punky Brewster. She was, a, she wasn't even born at this point. And he just stopped my mom. And he said, is your son an actor? I love this kid's look, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, who is this guy? I don't know if he's legit or whatever. He said, my son's on this audition and a commercial audition right store. And his son came out and his son had been in a lot of stuff. He was quite working quite a bit at the time. So I realized, well, this guy must know what he's talking about. His son's working. And so I started studying with him at 13 and uh, he ended up becoming my mentor, my manager, and really helped break me into the business. Right, right. That's a great start. That's a really good yeah, start. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it, well, it made all the difference because I had five years of 
you know, professional, you know, uh, you know, hardcore acting classes, you right. know, drama therapy, you know, where you could get to, where you could dig into really deep emotions. So I had like a lot of access emotionally by that point. And everybody kept saying, when you turn 18, because back then the emancipation laws, you had to be 18 to work. Right. It, it look 15 even better. Right. So that, which is exactly what they kept saying, when you turn 18, you're going to, you're going to work like crazy because everybody knew I was good at that point in the class. And that's exactly what happened. Since I turned 18, I just, for five years, I just worked nonstop. Right. Right. And right. When 80s teen cinema was blowing up, I was the right age, right time. And to have five years training was just a, a huge edge for me over most young actors. Right. 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 And so, th- so basically your first major role was in, children of the corn yeah all i had done before that was uh was a commercial uh national commercial in new york uh and uh, so it was my first my first big it was my first role my first feature really wow what was the audition process like yeah so you know pretty typical where you go in for the first you know the first one and uh i had already auditioned for that casting director before and she was already a believer you know she and that's what that's what people ask for advice and i was like you know, study and get good. And if you can get three casting directors who believe in you, you can work, you know, like you get, you get three people who you know, can believe in you. And she was the first one to, to do so, Linda Francis. And um, so, so I knew I had that going in and I just right. I had a chip on my shoulder that I had something to prove at that point and I was going to prove it. And uh, so I was in there, I had a, you know, I was looking at every other actor, like I was going to eat them for lunch, basically. The character. And, uh, <laughs> And uh, the big, the big story is uh, the reader who went on to be a, a big casting director called uh, Jeff Goldblum, or Jeff Goldberg. Um, I had a plastic knife, one of those ones that goes, you know, and I had it in my pocket. And I didn't know if I was going to use it or not, but uh, I did. I put it, I pulled it on him. I put it right under his throat. So he couldn't tell whether it was real or it wasn't real. You could see it, you know, a director and producer could all see it, but he couldn't see it. And he, he about wet his pants, you know, and uh, he, matter of fact, for years, he told the story of what not to do, which is what I had done to him and uh, never worked for him <laughs> as a casting director either, I might add. Um, uh, but it, it got me in. So by that was round one and round two, they had already cast John. So it was down to like two or three of us. And uh, I just remember grabbing, you know, he's a you know, much smaller guy than me. That's why I look yeah. so big in the movie. I just remember grabbing him by his lapels and about taking him off his feet and just shaking the crap out of him. <laughs> you know, he was all for it though. He was a great sport, but I remember that I just, I just, you know, yeah, took him and shook him. And I guess that was, that sealed the deal. I don't know. Right. And so you got the part. Was it, was it yeah. complicated preparing for the role? Um, you know, I, what 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 it always is for me is there's sort of a, uh, a what I call sort of a bullseye in my mind of where I want to get to right whatever that is where I sort of I'm not trying to do less I'm not trying to do more I'm trying to get to the specific place and so for me it was like I would prepare and then I would I knew what I wanted to see in my eyes right but right. I've you know, got to do this internally not externally right so I prepare and then I would run into the mirror and I you know yeah, and see if I had the glare yet. I'm like, oh, it's not quite there yet. Keep working, keep working. And then I remember when I, you know, there was, I came to that mirror and I saw it and then I knew I had it. And it, with, with each character, it's different. Like I know mm. we we're going to talk about colors a little bit. With colors, you know, I grew up in those neighborhoods. It was when I s- didn't see the graffiti like I saw it, but I saw the graffiti from the inside out that I knew I had, I had arrived. 
when I understood the graffiti, where the need for the graffiti was coming from. And every character you do, you're, you know, you're trying to find it. Those, you have that moment, hopefully, where you, something clicks, where you know you've arrived. And that's when I had that look, you know, the look I wanted to see in my eyes, that glare, that burn, I knew I had emotionally arrived. Right, right. Yeah, and I always find it interesting. I know some actors talk about working from the outside in sure. to find a, an appearance. Or I think mm -hmm. Alec Guinness um, famously said that, you know, he always found the character in, its, in their walk. So therefore, he, he chose the shoes first. So that, yeah. you know, just to work out how this person... All of, those, all of those things and anything you can find, right? I mean, yeah. you know, sort of the way I look at it is, you know, you're trying to find real and everything is not, right? Everything around you is, is, is false, right? There's yeah. a camera, there's other human beings watching, there's light, it's all false, right? And you're trying to find truth. So any little thing you can get hold of, if it's a pair of shoes or a hat or a, you know, or a walk or a, right. a, a, a rhythm of a dialogue, a dialect, whatever it is, you know, get it and hold on to it for dear life, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I remember at drama school, I always used to go and say, can I have the costume? I just need it as early as possible, just so I can start wearing it and work out mm -hmm. what it feels like to be this person. Oh, cool. So you got Children of the Corn. Yeah. Where, where was it shot? So uh, shot in Sioux City, Iowa, or around Sioux City, Iowa, which, which is a pretty small area town. Uh, right. They were looking for the best corn they could find. Uh, so it was, it was near Nebraska, which is, of course, where there's a lot of corn as well. Um, then we shot the, in the town, was a little town called Whiting, which I think they had like a graduating class of like 25 kids or something. That's how small it was. So, right. And people still go to there to this day and, and do pilgrimages to there and take pictures of all the locations and stuff, which I just find, sometimes they come up to me at conventions and they'll be like, hey, here's some pictures of me going to the Gatlin. And I'm just like, wow, you know, you know, I'm just amazed that somebody would go all the way to, you know, middle of nowhere, Iowa to, to, to do that. But people do. You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. They, I, every so often, people post photographs of the Hellraiser house, the house that's still there. Um, where is that? Uh, up in North London, and mm -hmm. apparently the Japanese love turning up there every so often. Oh yeah, yeah. They get off the bus and take photographs, and then move on, move on yeah. again. So yeah. was this was this your first time away from home? working yeah you know it was i mean uh, it was and that uh yeah it, it wasn't the first time i was ever away it was the first time i've ever been away from home by myself right yeah so and i hadn't done that much traveling before that so it was a, you know it was a big it was a big uh you know moment in my life and you know when i got the part you know my my, my uh, agents were like are you happy and i just said i'll be happy when the job's done because it was like the moment of truth right i right. i'd been studying all this time now it was the moment of truth. Either I can do this or I can't do this. Either I'm good at this or not good at this. Right. Mm -hmm. That was what was that's what was at stake for me personally. You know, I didn't know that the movie was going to go on to to become a cult classic or any of these things. You know, right. Or that horror was going to become so mainstream over time. None of that stuff. I just knew that I needed to prove to me. You know, uh, I belonged. I could do this. Right. And that's when I was done. That's what I knew. I right. knew that I, I felt good about what I'd done and I knew that I could do it. And uh, I came back with a lot of confidence in that regard. And I knew that that was my, you know, that was the future. That was the direction I was heading. Right. Right. And what was the atmosphere like on set? Were there pranks being played? Well, so, so, uh, so 
Fritz Kirsch, the director, nice guy. We, st- we still keep in touch. And I don't keep in touch with a lot of people, to be honest. So, you, you, know, it's like we all, you all say you do at the end of the movie. Yeah. Like, oh, I keep in touch. But, you know, it doesn't really happen a lot. Um, uh, uh, so he was a nice guy, but he decided uh, to – he told me, do not be nice to the kids, like, uh, ever. You know, like, at the hotel, nothing. And so, so that's what I did. So they were always a little intimidated by me. But I believe he also did that, though I've never asked him directly. I believe he also did that with Peter Horton to me, because Peter Horton was not very nice. But then again, I've met him other times, and he wasn't very nice either. So who knows? Maybe it was just being him. I don't know. But, you know, there was – so there was a – in that way, uh, there was always a little bit of an edge, at least around me, with people. Because either I, right. I was putting them or they were not being nice to me. Not Linda Hamilton was always super nice. But um, – right. but, uh but there was, there, you know, he put these little seeds out there to to create some some tension. I think with the kids, which with the kids, that was a good idea, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, them not to be friendly with me, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, the best story, the best prank, uh, and I think it was literally day one, right before I did my first shot, um, was when uh, Linda Hamilton, uh, after they run the kid over, and she goes up to him in that sort of dream sequence, and he pops up at her. Well, they really stuck him under there when she wasn't looking. And so he really did pop up and she like jumped like 10 feet and, and, you know, screamed and, and cussed them out and laughed and the whole crew had a great laugh. I think that was like day one. So it was just a great way to like cut the, cut the ice, you know, right, right in the beginning. And, and she was a great sport about it. So it was just like, it, it was really good, you know, yeah, yeah, the yeah. best prank I've ever seen on a film actually. <laughs> <laughs> when were you aware of the film's success? Oh, when it came out, right? I mean, it, it you know, uh, the moment, I would say the moment was, though, I, um, uh, you know, near UCLA, the campus of UCLA is mm. town Westwood, right? And there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, movie theaters there. And I don't remember why I went there, because I don't, li- I didn't live near there, but I went there and I was actually wearing my Children of the Corn jacket, too, which is even more like, why would I have done that to create even more attention to myself? But that was the moment it really hit me when everybody started, people started staring at me and, 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 you know, it was like, I realized like, wow, people have seen this movie and people, you know, have an idea of who I am and then who they have the idea of who I am is this, is this scary guy. And it was, it was actually quite overwhelming, to be honest. I felt like, you know, all of a sudden you're in, I understand though I've only dealt with it on a small level, but I understand when big, big actors talk or big athletes talk about being in a bubble you know, and they can't go anywhere and they can't, you know, they can't have a private life at all. You know, um, I, I've experienced it on a smaller scale, but at 18 years old, it was a lot. I felt like I couldn't, mm. you know, pick my nose in public or something. <laughs> Somebody would see it. Right. Yeah, like, you felt yeah. you like you're like, you know, and it's, 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 so it was hard to be yourself. And, uh, I, so like I said, I, I experienced it on a small level, small level, but it was enough. It was right. enough. Yeah. Yeah, I have always said that it's, it's kind of cool, for, you know, for my career. Obviously, I was playing under masks. So yes. I was kind of famous in a very specific area of my life. And that's, okay, that's it. And now, yeah, you definitely had a level of anonymity, for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. So in 1985, you went on to do a small supporting role in Back to the Future. What was it like um, working with Robert Zemeckis? Um, he's a nice guy. Uh, we, you know, we, we certainly didn't get close. Like I said, it was a small role, but, um, what Robert does is just shoot the crap out of stuff. Like he just gets, especially that big dance sequence. He just, 
shot it for like a couple of days, every angle, everything, you know, you could think of so that he just has a ton of coverage and they can cut it together the way they want. And I think he obviously went on to realize how good of filmmaker mm. he really is at that time. I don't think any of us knew, you know, um, but, but what was the two interesting things about Back to the Future for me was, so uh, actually the first, first job I ever did was a film for the American Film Institute in, in, in Hollywood. It was a short film that Crispin Glover starred in. And they've, right. done this, they've done this movie three times. Sean Penn actually did a role, played the role too at one point. All shorts, you can actually get them now called the Beaver Trilogies. And it's about this filmmaker who commits suicide. And so I had this, just a small scene, but the, 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 the thing is, so we're just guys smoking in the boys' room. That's all it is, right? So we're rehearsing, and then Christmas character opens his bathroom door, which we had bathroom stall, which we had not seen him, right? He opens the door, and he's dressed in that black outfit of Olivia Newton-John in, in Greece. And it's Crispin Glover. You're like, hey, hey guys, hi, 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 how you doing? You know? And I'm just like watching this guy, first blown away by the outfit, but second blown away by this guy's acting. Like this guy's subtext and, and you know, inner dialogue is like all flashing before his eyes. I'm like, this guy is, this guy is great. Who is this guy? And then obviously went on to do Back to the Future. So I had worked with him before, so it was great to have a lead actor on the show who I knew. Mm. Yeah. came right to my trailer he welcomed me and, and you know that that makes a big difference and yeah so, yeah so it was great to get to to and he's still to this day every time he sees me at a convention talks about that particular project and how it's still one of the favorite best things he feels he's ever done so interestingly enough so that was right. my first first gig which i forgot about so we were we were talking so and then the second part of the story is so some people know those people don't but eric stoltz was originally the lead in the mm. film and he wasn't funny because he was kind of a man. He's a man. I think he's a wonderful actor. We did Memphis Bell together, but he wasn't, they, he wasn't what they wanted. And so they ended up letting him go. It was the you know, biggest uh, low in his career, you know, really yeah. intense moment for him. Um, and they replaced him with, with Michael J. Fox. So I'd already worked. So, and they already did what they call a drop pickup as well, which means they can't drop me for a period of time again. So I got paid for five weeks while they reshot everything. So for the small role, it's been uh, because it's gone on to be, you know, Back to the Future, the trilogy is one of the biggest trilogies of all time. It's been by far the best residual payday of my career. It's been a complete blessing. Right, right, right. Thank this you, Back to the Future. Yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> <laughs> this is what we're always looking for as actors. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> That's what keeps an actor alive is residuals in between jobs. It's, oh, it's, a, yeah. it's our lifeline, which... You know, nowadays I feel really bad for actors coming up because, with, you know, Amazon and Hulu and all this, I don't know really what the future of residual income is going to be for actors. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I think this is, we were just discussing earlier on today, I'm just thinking, you know, the union over here has just lost all their dues from everybody who worked in the West End, the dancers, wow. you know, holiday camps, cruise liners, everything. All these people yeah. are now out of work essentially until next year yeah you know, the theaters are not gonna so yeah not, not good the at screen all. actors guild just uh i want to say gutted the insurance program they just up the doubled the amount of money i had to make to to keep insurance i would say they've at least 50 percent of the actors literally as of today uh are are without insurance oh and they had God. to do it because they were going bankrupt it's it's sad though it's a sad day yeah yeah no and that's that's yeah and that's so, so things are changing things are getting tougher 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So hopefully things will find a way. We, we will, human beings tend to survive overall. Yeah, so hopefully. This is a hundred year pandemic. This is not, uh, this is not, you know, this is not small stuff. This no, is, no, this no, is not at all. To recover from, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. But I was just, you know. That, yeah. Yes. We will. We will. We'll survive. We will. You've survived the bubonic plague. You've survived. Yes. Yeah. Well, and the last pandemic, the flu at the end of the, yeah. But uh, although that's only, that's still in living memory, come to think of it. Anyway, um, let's go back to colours. You mentioned colours earlier on. Um, what was it like? Because this was only a few years before the uh, LA riots that you were Correct. filming. What Correct. Was the yeah. Well, so, uh, so, so first off, so how I got that role, two, two ways that happened. So I worked with an actor named uh, Gerardo Mejia, who was famous for a song called Rico Suave back in the 80s. Um, right. We did three movies in a row together. Um, the second one was Can't Buy Me Love, and then the third one was Colors. And so when we were shooting Can't Buy Me Love, he knew that I grew up in tough neighborhoods in, in L.A. And so, she, you know, and so he, and so we had that same background. And he's like, dude, I just got this script. You're not going to believe it. There's a white gangbanger in this movie. you got to get on this. And so it happened. I knew it was Dennis Hopper, and my acting mentor knew Dennis Hopper well. They, he, helped, he helped him make Easy Rider. So, so they were having trouble finding that role, understandably. Yeah. And um, so, you know, so they got in contact and told them the situation. I mean, they kept looking for somebody. They couldn't find somebody. By the time I got back into town, I, I went in and in the sort of the gang gear and just had a meeting. And they they gave me the job because, they, like I said, they really couldn't find anybody that, that understood the culture, you know, like right. I did. I grew up around that stuff. I have guys I grew up with, they're all dead in jail or in jail, you know, like I grew up around that stuff. So I really wanted to be part of it because I knew that there were white gang, gang bangers. As a matter of fact, there was a guy that I went to grammar school with who ended up being a gang banger who was a Reddit. I mean, this talk about really random. And so I'm sure he thought I completely stole him for the movie, which is exactly what I did. So, um, <laughs> but uh, to this day, Billy Red is his nickname. I'm sure he, you know, his mind had to be blown when he saw me in that movie. Because, like I said, we grew up together, and then there I was playing him, basically. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, it, it's such an unusual look. Correct. Yeah, yeah, I mean, not even just be a white guy, but to be a redheaded white guy yeah. on top of it, right? So, um, but yeah, I, so I, like I said, I knew that culture, though. So I right. really wanted right. to show that it wasn't just a, a black problem or just a brown problem, but also a white problem, you know? Right. And uh, it's, a, it's an everybody problem. What I think was amazing about that movie was that Dennis Hopper brought the gang the los angeles west coast gang culture to the world i don't think people had any idea what was going on mm. especially south central los angeles so i think in that and i it broke west coast rap so it, like it really that that thing opened up a lot of doors and boys in the hood would have never been made matter of fact singleton said i wrote that movie in response to colors because colors didn't answer any questions colors basically just said if you follow this path you're going to end up dead or in jail that's basically yeah. all it said. Yeah. Um, so it, you know, it was it wasn't personalized like Boys in the Hood was, you know. Um, but but that movie would not have been made if it wasn't for the success of Colors, you know. So it's interesting, you know. You can take that all into like West Coast rap, you know, it's, uh, gangster rap, all the stuff that really kind of that movie kind of opened that door. And that's what Dennis Hopper, you know, his, his ability as an artist is that he could. You, know, you have to be a couple of years ahead of the curve to make a movie that comes out right at the right time. The same thing you mm -hmm. did with, 
you know, uh, so he, he has that artistic ability to, to see the future almost in my mind. Um, right. But yeah, I think the question you're asking was about the tensions in LA. Yeah. There was always tension, particularly within the, you know, uh, the brown and black culture of Los Angeles, you know, LAPD sucked. You know, they were a bad, they they were, they were tough guys and they put beat downs on people. Like it was well known, you know, in LA mm. that, you know, that the LAPD were not to be trifled with, you know, and um, that's really where the tension was. And that's why when the Rodney King, you know, beatings happened and it was actually seen and then they got off that the place just went ballistic because mm. they've been dealing with it for years and years and years, you know, and to not see any justice, obviously today they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have got off, you know, yeah. Not today's culture. But then you literally could catch cops beating somebody to, you know, to pulp on video and still get off, get off. Incredible. Well, I, I watched it uh, recently. I'd not seen it before. And of course, watching it now in the light of Black Lives Matter, and I thought the most telling moment within the film for the, the riots in, in Los Angeles is where the cop shoots a guy who's reaching for his pants. Right. In the back. Right. And I, I, know, and I think the way the scene is done, you can actually kind of understand the cop's point of view. Sure. But it is that moment where he has the whole hearing, et cetera, et cetera. He comes out of the door and says, you know, so what happened is this, I'm back after lunch. Yeah. You know, there is, you just yeah. get that whole, and that's what I think one of the strengths of the writing um, in it is a fascinating film. Um, but what I also found fascinating was the fact that you have a musical credit on yeah, the film. Know, I knew, I mean, I knew I played guitar in it, but um, I didn't know there was actually a credit, which explains why uh, on Facebook, people are always finding me, asking me where to get the song. It's called Love, it's called Love, Gar Love Guaranteed, which I wouldn't have known either, but um, the girl wrote it. The girl right. wrote the song and she went up to Dennis and said, can I do this? And he was like, yeah, sure, this is good, let's do it. Dennis uh, put me through the paces in, in ways that no, no director's ever put me through the paces. And when you consider I was the 87th character on the list, that's kind of phenomenal. And because um, he had a way of, he wouldn't necessarily explain a scene, he would let, let it be really loose. And, but then if you did something he didn't like, he would yell at you. And I was a pretty confident actor by then, and I was, I'd play the moment. And, and a lot of the other actors were pretty green and they were scared to do anything. And so they would just stand there hoping not to get yelled at. And where I was playing the moment, but sometimes he didn't like the things I did, but he, nothing got past him. You know what I mean? And he threw things at me that were like uh, amazing. Like the scene where you people remember I'm on PCP. Yeah. I flinch when the squibs go up. Yeah. He just threw that right at me right before it shot. He goes, Whitey, come here. And he called me my, my character's name. Stand right here. You're high up ECP. Let's go. I'm thinking, this is your mother. Like, how can you just throw that at me with, like, no prep, no nothing? And I had a couple of minutes to figure some things out, and I did it, and it just ended up being a great moment. Um, but he, same thing. He saw me playing guitar. Sit, I always take a guitar with me. I often take a guitar to me with set if I'm going to be on set for, you know, many weeks or whatever. Yeah. To kill time. He, just, he came out of the bathroom, saw me playing guitar, filed it away in his memory. When he decided to do that, he goes, Whitey, go get your guitar. And then there it is. I mean, he's got gangbangers playing music. I mean, you know, interesting, cool choice. Yeah, yeah. It's such a um, love, and it is such a lovely moment 
in the movie as well. Right, they just, right before something very dramatic happens yeah, too. Yeah, you know? yeah, and it, you know, which really heightens that moment because you get a yeah. big leap. So yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, that was very dramatic, but complete, <laughs> <laughs> complete change of tone in the next movie I'd like to discuss was in 1989. You starred in The Burbs with yeah. Tom Hanks. What's your fondest memory of working on The Burbs? Well, first off, yeah, that's not just uh, the late, great Carrie Fisher, Bruce Dern. I mean, yes. Brother Theodore, Henry Gibson. I mean, some really good veteran actors and yeah. that honestly was the biggest challenge for me is is this this foreign man from a foreign land that when i would look i'd be like these are people i grew up on right there's bruce Dern, there's carrie fisher there's tom hanks like i had to shake that off all the time you know not because they were in my childhood memories as it were yeah you know? i yeah. mean so that was that was the uh the biggest challenge um Joe Dante, the director, was great, really encouraging, made a lot of decisions, made a lot of choices for my character, like, you're going to wear this, we're going to cut your hair like this, we're going to get you bad teeth, and every every step of the way, he'd look at what they'd done and laugh and say, you're never going to work again, that's what he was <laughs> <laughs> but he was great and very encouraging, um, but I mean, you know, everything you hear about Tom Hanks is true, he's a great guy, and he he's the most down-to-earth A-list actor you're ever going to meet. You know, he's just, he just is, he's just, right. a, he's as Americana as it comes. Like, you know, his, like, what he'd like to do on, when he was on set, you know, he would have a little radio like 1950s or something and listen to baseball while smoking a stogie or something. You know what I mean? Just like Americana personified. And I think that's what he brings to the party. You know, he really, and you see it with his company Playtone, which I, I had a chance to work with a little bit and get to know those guys. They're, they're very supportive about a film that I helped produce years back tried to help get it distributed, but they didn't have to do anything for me, and they did. Um, his ability to choose material through his company, and if you look, it's always very Americana. You know, it's about, you know, a, a war, or it's about, you know, the 50s. I guess for the, you know, like, he's, he, 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 he has a nostalgia for the past, you can tell. And, yeah. and he finds those stories, and he brings those stories out. And uh, Playtone's done some tremendous work, you know, but I think it's really that eye of choosing material. Right, right, right. Well, it's interesting what you're saying about Tom Hanks, because, of course, he famously uses a manual typewriter still. See, that's what I mean. There you yeah, go. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, give an example. I, I went up for, um, what was that big war miniseries? Like, I'm blanking on it right now. Uh, it was a big, it was the one that really put Playtime on the map. It was a big Vietnam miniseries. Oh, I don't know if we would have... It'll come to me in a minute. Uh, yeah. But I went and auditioned for that, and uh, he was in the room reading with all of the actors. That does not happen. You know what I'm saying? Like, he didn't have, he could have just sat there as a producer, let somebody else be a reader. And, but he's like, I enjoy it. And it just ups your game. You're not going to suck reading with, you know, this, you're working with Tom Hanks right now. You're not going to suck. You're going to bring your game. Right. You know, and it, 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 it was great, but it just, it just shows you the sort of the difference between him and pretty much everybody else because nobody, mm. nobody would do that. Yeah. You know, yeah. Let's, let's, let's interact, let's play, you know, let's yeah. put you in ease, you know, really yeah. great. Yeah. You mentioned earlier on that um, when you, you know, from the first, from turning 18, 
you kind of worked more or less constantly for the next five years. What do you think is the most important lesson you learned during those <laughs> five years? <laughs> really, uh, I don't know if it was a lesson, but I think it's interesting to talk about maybe sort of what happened. And, and, and um, Burbs was a, was a big part of that. You know, that character was, was very lost, you know, I felt. And it, it, so what I worked with was uh, sort of a deer in the headlights. So that was sort mm. of my animal essence, you know, deer in the headlights. Um, and I just, I just been working, 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 and I was bouncing back and forth and like doing like, you know, whatever job I'm doing to doing the, you know, the ADR for, you know, colors, a totally different thing, or, you know, really, and I was really, you know, really working on, you know, method work and physicalities. And I hit a moment right around after probably the end of Burbs or around when I was doing that, where I couldn't remember how I walked. That scared the hell out of me. And I felt like I had sort of over, sort of lost myself a little bit. And when I sort of reached out to people within, you know, my world, nobody cared. I'll just be honest. Nobody cared. It was like, mm. oh, Courtney's working too much. Boo hoo. You know? Yeah. 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 And so I had to really kind of deal with it on my own. And it, it, it just forced me to take a step back for a while. Um, maybe not to the best of, you know, maybe, maybe I lost some momentum in my career. After, right. after doing that, say Memphis Bell, you know, I, I, I stayed in England for a while. I traveled through Europe. I went to India. Like, I took some time off, you know, when everybody else was, like, raring to get back. And I came back, and I started a production company and a band. And I really – I kind of thought – the other thing is I kind of thought I arrived at that point. And right. that, was, that was the mistake as far as the work goes because I stopped putting my work in in auditions. I just thought all I had to do was show up. Right. And I'm not, right. a, good, I'm not a good bullshitter as an actor. Like, I have to do the work. Nor am I just something you can turn it on or off like a Tom Hanks. And I know we're going to tell you're going to tell about Sweet Home Alabama, like a Reese Weatherspoon. Those people make me infuriated how easily they can flick it on and off like a light switch. Uh, I have to work at it. You know, I have to really get myself to a place. And uh, they make it look easy. Right. Really easy. (laughs) Uh, But I think that, yeah, I think that I... I think I was, it was a great run and I'm, and I'm certainly thankful for it. Um, but at the same time, I think that I, I, you know, I, I sort of had to, I had to take a step back for a little while. And I had to step off of, uh, step off of things a little bit. I think it may have, like I said, it may have hurt momentum in the long run, but you got, you know, you see how people get lost in Hollywood and there's many ways to do it. Mm. And, you know, it was important that I kept my myself intact and then balance. So if there's anything you said, what did I learn? I learned that I had to balance my life and my work. Right. That's what I learned. Right. Right. Yeah. Which is a lesson I think many of us and weirdly in the current situation as well, completely new balances having to be found. You yeah. mentioned, you mentioned Memphis Bell. Mm-hmm. Was that the first time you'd worked out of the country or? Yeah. Yes. And uh, I, I, I liked England a lot. The most interesting thing about it was that when we first got there, we got there on the 1st of July. And then, so of course the 4th of July came by, came around. And of course it was just completely unacknowledged. It didn't even exist. <laughs> and we're doing a war movie. So it was even that much weirder. Right. And, um, but ironically we, we'd been egging them on to let us go up in a B7, in a B-17. They had three of them and they were shooting second unit footage and they were like, no, 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 which they probably should have never let us do it. 
but they did on the 4th of July. We got to fly in a B-17. So that was, to me, the July of all, 4th of July is of all 4th of yeah. July. Yeah, 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 I can imagine. Experience. Amazing experience. Um, that movie was, was just top-notch. You know, you had four, every one of the actors, when I see them, they all say, we're still trying to, like, chase that experience again. Like, we've never, no one's ever had it better than that experience. It was, it was, you know, you had four Oscar winning people on there. You're, you're the, the Stuart Craig is the art department. Basically any movie ever seen come out of England, he's on it mm-hmm. still to this day. Um, David Watkins, I don't even remember people's names. Usually. David Watkins, the DP, who won an Oscar for out of Africa. You had David Putnam, who obviously all the things he did, yeah. he won Oscars for. So you had just this, you know, you had some really quality, you know, people behind this movie and they we ended up we did a boot camp and that's how we all really got a chance to really sort of sink ourselves into this thing and um it was like a five-day boot camp that was like the longest five days of my life one one day went from 3 a.m to 3 a.m i think it was our second day and that's when i think they pretty much broke us all you know it just you learn sleep deprivation you can pretty much break anybody yeah you know, you know what i mean yeah. Which is military, that's what you do, right? You break them down and build them back up. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they just had us going through just, you know, constant, you know, like, you know, prop scenarios where, you know, you got to drag this guy through this mud up to your waist, you know, five minutes to do it. And they're like shooting out flare guns and all this stuff and having Matthew Modine lead us through it. And, but one thing after another, after another, after another for like 24 hours, and you're just like fried, you know? It, but, it was, but it was great because everybody's true personality came out, um, and, including mine. And uh, it, was, it was interesting, Matthew Modine talked about this moment. He said, that's when it all kind of got real for me anyway. We were, we had screwed up something. So they had us, you know, with our backpacks on, you know, having to lift our legs up for like an X amount of minutes or whatever, right? And this backpack had like a metal frame and it was digging into my back. And I was trying to tell the guy like, let me just take the back of my document. And, you know, this ex-SAS guy, like, he would mop me up, right? I mean, you're talking, like, you know, heavy-duty dudes. These are the guys who, uh, they had gone into the Falkland Wars and when uh, the mm-hmm. uh, 80s, when, Iran, when, and when the, Irani, the Iranians took over that embassy, these yeah. were the guys who parachuted onto that building and swung in there and took the building back. These are the guys that were training us. Wow. Yeah, and... He was, he, he was like blowing me off, blowing me off. And I just snapped. I just was like, either, you know, I take this back, back up, or me and you's getting up and I'm going, we're going right effing now. You understand me? And luckily he's like, move the backpack. Because if that fool would have said, get on up, son, he would have just destroyed me. You know what I mean? <laughs> he I mean, it would have been a joke, but I would have gone for it. I would have tried to tear his head off because I was in pain, you know, and that doesn't that doesn't go over well with me when I'm in pain. No, because you were slim. It's not like you were a big. I was the worst. I was me and Neo Gentelli, who played the other guy, were probably the uh, play the other uh, 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 door gunner. Were probably the two worst in shape guys. I didn't. I didn't get in shape before, and I certainly regretted it. It's the only time I've ever was. Uh, we were doing a, a run where I actually just collapsed. I mean, I played basketball in high school. Mm. I'll be fine, but no, I actually, I actually fell one time, just flat out. My legs just went out from under me so i was i would wish that i wish i had trained a little more for that movie. <laughs> it sounds yeah I, i've met sas guys and yeah they're they can be very intense 
Yeah, yeah, it was an interesting experience. But like I said, every actor, at, at, you know, had their moment, you know, where mm. we all got to sort of see, and, and, the, and the brilliance of it was, was that, which we didn't think about at the time, was after that was all done, we'd gone through the experience, when we went to shoot all the interiors, we didn't slug out, you know, unless we got together to hang out. You were in your little part where there's maybe two people or, you know, Harry Connick's characters in a tail all by himself. He didn't shoot for like months. And then he finally did, he was just by himself you know, most of the time. So you didn't really, we never saw, we were never all together as a group. Mm. Once we shot the exteriors, we went to the interiors. We never, we were never together all as a unit again. So it was, it was good to have that suffering bonding moment, you know, it gave us some glue. Right, right, right. Yes. Yeah. I'd not thought about that at all because of course the whole film is about the fact that they are so separated no talking walking talkers fascinating you mentioned earlier on um sweet home alabama which i have to say i really enjoyed i particularly enjoyed your comic (laughs) you're talking about reese witherspoon being able to turn it you know turn it on and off she's the real deal right i mean like every anything that girl puts her mind to should say woman at this point puts her mind to she just does like i mean you know her production company now that she has and you know she just she's just the she's just an a-type go-getter takes no prisoners type of a person you know and was uh, that kind of sorry interrupt no go ahead go ahead i was gonna say how did that affect working on the set it was that so so josh lucas i had actually i used to i, I taught for a number of years as well and i used to go up to san francisco and i used to go up to oregon and when i was in oregon i i had worked with josh lucas before he became josh lucas right so we were, you know, we were friendly. And when I got to, to uh, Atlanta to shoot, he, you know, he reached out to me right away. He'd been working with her for a while. So he kind of gave me a little bit of the lowdown, particularly about she's from Tennessee. So right. nobody's accent's good enough for her. You know what I mean? Right. She's from Tennessee. And, and he was originally from the South and she, he was, she was giving him trouble. So, um, so that was good to know. Right. So, so the first day, by my, the biggest scene I have was my first day. And um, at some point she asked me that. And I said, none of your damn business. That's where my accent's from. And after that, we got along. And <laughs> she was great. <laughs> and she would say, your accent's great, but these guys, I don't know. You know, thank God. Because I, did, I, you know, I just didn't want to get into it. I don't, like to break, I don't like to break my character. I don't like to break where I'm from. I've done a lot of, I've done a lot of Southerners. You know, I'm from L.A. But if I told her L.A., like, my credibility would have just been shot with her. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. I just, so I just didn't let her know. And that was the kind of respect I needed to get, apparently, because she was great. But, I mean, <laughs> I, have a lot, I have a tremendous amount of respect for her and her abilities and her work. And, like, yeah, she makes it look so easy. You know, she really does. She just turns it on and off like a light switch, you know? Right, right. Uh, but that was, you know, that movie was a was an interesting, you know, point in my career. I, in the 90s, I just, I had the hair long and played a lot of Mad Dogs because that's really what I thought was available for my, I had already gone through the teenage run and it was sort of like, there was no 20-something roles. It was kind of like teenager or 30. So I said, what am I going to do? So I grew the hair out long and I put the goatee on and I played a lot of Mad Dogs for like a decade. And it was low hanging fruit for my, my team at the time. And I just was at a point where I was burned out on it. And I was, so I knew they wouldn't go for it. So I just shaved all my hair off and took new pictures and just said, this is what I'm doing. I'm not going up for any bad guys for a while. And I sat out for like six months, maybe a year. And that short hair is pretty much what got me that role. You know, they'd seen me 
for another audition, liked me, remembered me, brought me back for that, and I got it. And uh, they couldn't wrap their head around that I could, you know, I said, I said, go to my past. I've done comedy and stuff. I can do other things. I chose, you think this is who I am. I chose this route for a long time because it was working for me, but I'm done. And the long haired tough guy thing was played out in the market too. And that's the thing I think when you're doing a l- number of years, you have to look at when it's time to reinvent mm-hmm. yourself and you have to look at the market. And even when your people don't want to see it, you got to like put the line in the sand and, and uh you know stick to your guns and you know it was a it was a it was a to have a bit it was the first time i had a big theatrical release in a long time and it you know all of a sudden they whatever they see last is what they remember all of a sudden i'm going up for comedies you know i'm going up for sheriffs you know like it, it, it sort of changed the whole equation for a while you right know, went on a whole different run right it's interesting um next one i'd like to talk about is 2010 um you work with Dwayne Johnson on mm-hmm. the action film Faster. Mm-hmm. Now that was kind of right after his career took off, and you you, met, you you mentioned at the top of the of the uh, show that you're not really into films with violence and so on. But this is very much a very heavy hitter. Yeah, I t- I tend to I tend to be less worried about violence somehow in like a drama though than like I mean horror I feel it's just like gratuitous and people are pulling out. Yeah. People cleans and you know that's what i it's like it's just yeah sort of no, i get be over the top crazy you know um but no you're right it's a it's a it's a movie about revenge i mean it's a revenge film you know every step of the way um well two things about that number one was so got to work with billy bob thornton and i, got, and I say again most people don't know the other thing we did the first thing I think it was the first job billy bob thornton ever did was this it was this hour live show horrible live i think it lasted a season in la called the judge and it, it was sort of like a like those shows you see like judge judy but it was fake right and it was really you know poorly done but uh uh, uh my cat my manager knew the casting director and they wanted me to do it and i said okay but so billy bob and i played brothers in that it was the first thing he'd ever done and I remember at some point his card broke down, his VW bug, I gave him a ride home. And, and he was talking about how he was writing and going to direct because it was the only way he was going to really get himself going and stuff. And I was, nobody was doing that then. And I was just like, yeah, good luck with that, buddy. You know, and goes on to be a great writer, great director, and obviously a hell of an actor, you know. Um, so it was really good, gets good to re- reunite with him. Mm-hmm. And, um, so there was that component. And then the, the story I like to tell about, because uh, Dwayne Johnson's a good guy. Right. Know, definitely a good guy. And just, just to sort of prove my point. So the first scene we did was the scene where his brother sitting next to him gets his, because we captured them or whatever, gets his throat slashed, right? Right. And for two days, I kid you not, two days, the director just keeps shooting that scene where he's going, you know, when he gets his throat going, no, no, you know, and, and, and Dwayne Johnson, like a champ, just keeps doing it. I'd have been, you know, me at this stage, I'd been like, after four of them, like, what do you want, dude? Like, what do you want? There's so much you want, we'll do that. But this guy's the star of the movie, and he's not even, you know, flip, you know, just, just, he just sets the tone, right? Like, this guy's got no ego about it. He's just going, 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 going. So we finally get done with that, and then we turn around to my coverage, right? And, of course, I get, like, two takes or three takes or whatever, which, of course, you know that's what's going to happen, right? Yeah. I'm not the lead of the movie. But I couldn't help but think of the joke ahead of time. So they, they cut this movie on. I turn to Dwayne, and I say, see, that's the way you do it, buddy. And, and 
And, you know, if he, first off, he'd been like, a, you know, any kind of eating system guy wouldn't have, wouldn't have said it at all. But the fact that I could say it and the fact that he could laugh and the whole room could laugh just shows you the kind of, how confident he is about himself. Yeah. You know, we, you could laugh about it, you know, but it wasn't him, you know, cause it wasn't. And, but it just, <laughs> after like two days of, we, I think we all needed like a comedic release at that point, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, really, yeah. You know, like I said, just, just not a guy who's, yeah. I mean, his ego's not there, you know? He's yeah. Not at all. Yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd like to move on to, you've done quite a lot of, um, period films and a few years ago you were in the miniseries directed by Roland Joffa uh, Texas Rising and yep. that has got a fantastic cast Bill Paxton, Ray Liotta, wow. Brendan Fraser, Jeffrey D. Yep. Morgan. Yep. What was it what was that shoot like and in fact where did you shoot? We shot it in Mexico. Oh wow. And uh, it, it, it's two, two things that movie. One it was an abs- I mean a miniseries absolutely was an amazing experience like you said, so many good actors and Roland Jaffe is probably the best with camera, with a camera I've ever seen. Okay. Right. He would do things that were like, like there was this one scene that I was, I wasn't in that I was watching where it starts out in a master comes down to a, a four shot, moves into a two shot, moves into a single, pulls back out in the master. It's all in one. And I was like, Whoa, dude, that was amazing. And he's like, cause you know, he'd never done TV before. Right. He's like, let's see him edit that. <laughs> Because <laughs> basically he knew he wasn't going to have control of the editing, right? So he started really figuring out how he could shoot these amazing wonders where he'd get all the coverage and stuff. And it was, it was incredible. The last scene of the, of the piece where there's all the cast in the bar at the end singing the Yellow Rose of Texas, he didn't want to do it. He said, I refuse. And the producer was shooting second unit which was completely the complete opposite world. And no, none of the big stars would even go there if they didn't have to, um, because it was not what was happening on, on, on the A set. Mm. And uh, he woke up and had a, he said he had a dream of how to shoot it and he shot it. So he started off, he started off in a mirror where the piano player's playing, comes out to where the guy's playing guitar and the guy's singing the song and he goes to every, he walks past every cast member. So they just follow him around, they get every, and then ends up back in the mirror. It was like an amazing shot. Like that would have been cheesy had he not, and that's why he didn't want to do it. Had he not come up with some amazing way to, to shoot it. Mm. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for on that level, but, but I have to say, I did not have a good experience. It's, and, and many people on the lower rungs of that movie did not have a good experience making it. It was a really, really tough shoot. I was on second unit a lot and it was, it was not fun. And mm. And I wasn't the only one who felt that way. And, and I don't know if that the producer, Leslie Gladders, Gladders, Gladders he's a big producer. Uh, if, if, he, uh, if he cast me and, 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 and Joffe didn't want me or whatever, but Joffe was not great to me either. So even when I was on A set, he, he didn't really like me as sort of the second guy to Ray Liotta. Like he seemed to always try to push me in the background somehow. Mm. Um, and so it was tough. I didn't feel like I was getting treated well on either set. And uh, that's not, that's, it, it, it just made for a bad experience in that regard. Being that it was such a, you know, wonderful, like the sets where the, the Alamo, the opening scene of the Alamo, that was the first day I got there. I walked in that set 
it was the biggest, baddest looking set I've ever seen that I've ever personally been on. Right. I was just like, you, you would go on set and you wouldn't know where set was. It was so big. You'd have like a hundred extras and they would spend the first quarter, sometimes half of the day choreographing them. And what they were doing in, say, like a fight scene, like a war scene or whatever, you would come on and they'd all be there already. It was like you would walk into a real war scene. It was like crazy. And then you would, they, they wouldn't show you what they were going to do. And they'd call action and you'd be interacting with this movement on a horse or whatever you were doing. It was phenomenal. And, and uh, Roland talked about basically – he would talk to me about some things like this. This is where I would get some jewels from the guy, even though he didn't <laughs> treat me very nice. <laughs> he, he talked about usually actors are in the foreground and there's a background, but when he shoots it like that, it's like a moving painting. They're the, they're the foreground. The actors are the background. And I'm just like, <sighs> right? Just like never seen anybody do what he was doing. And there's some pretty phenomenal shots in that. Right, right. I, I've not had a chance to watch it yet, but now I'm really fired up because it sounds absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it loses a little steam. It's five. It's five. Uh, it's five episodes, two-hour episodes. The last one is 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 it loses steam. And and the the reason the reason it it, 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 uh, Leslie Gladder was the same guy. Uh, 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 not Gladder. What is his last name? It'll come to me in a minute. Um, he shot the Hatfields and McCoys, which was a right. four-hour miniseries, which was fantastic. And so that's really what a miniseries should be. But but by the time he got to this, the 10-hour thing was the new miniseries format, like all the, the Stranger Things 10 episodes. Mm. You had to compete in that in that market if you wanted to, you know, that was the aspiration to get nominated for, you know, Emmy. And we got, snub, we got snubbed. But people, people said we got snubbed. But the last one was weak. And the reason it was weak really is because what they were trying to do was consider spinning it off into a series. Right. And so it really was about that as opposed right. to like making a mini series. And it really, it really sort of shows in the end. That yeah. it's, it's about, and then I guess, I don't know. Anyway, I don't know why they didn't decide to, but um, that would have been pretty awesome though to stay down in Mexico for a while and shoot a mini series. Yeah. Yeah, that would have, I mean, suit a series. I mean, that would have been pretty cool. The uh, the ranch we shot at was uh, was John Wayne's old ranch, and 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 the the uh, in Durango we shot in Durango, and it was uh, actually where that that's where the bar that was made was actually the movie was actually called Durango. Right. And so uh. they we were like in a we were like in a bar that John Wayne shot a western in. How cool is that? pretty pretty cool stuff his old ranch pretty cool stuff (laughs) so we spoke earlier about guitar playing on colors and i know you're currently playing in the band ripple street um any plans for further albums or yeah we just started tracking some stuff actually uh um we just did two tracks so we're in the middle of uh doing some mixes right now so probably just going to release some singles nowadays takes so much work to do an album and nowadays, right. nobody really cares if it's an album. They just buy one song for 99 cents or whatever they do, right? So yeah, you can do yeah. any way you want now. You can do EPs, you can do singles. So I think our goal is to just release, release a couple singles. And if that goes well, uh, uh, you know, keep working up some new material. So right. keep an eye out. <laughs> there may be some new Ripple Street material soon. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. Sorry, the, the, the dog has just walked in and is 
oh, demanding attention. <laughs> the other guy, the other guy, oh, my kid's here, hi. Like, <laughs> no, the, dog. the dog wants to know what's going on. Um, you see him, so you're good. <laughs> so, uh, any other new projects we should be looking out for at the moment? Um, you know, a lot of indie films, and so you just never know where they're going to mm. come out and when and how. Um, uh, well, a movie I did last year that was a horror film called Candy Corn that I helped produce is going to get another sort of october push for this October. So that's that's a good, you know, like me and horror films. I play, I play the sheriff in this small town. It's worth a watch. Right. And uh, <clears throat> so there's that. And uh, just did a really interesting little little small little indie uh, it's sci-fi but it's like really not sci-fi sci-fi uh like you know with all these crazy special effects or whatever called river just shot that right. recently enjoyed that role got to play a um uh a guy you know you know, you know he has an antique small town so he has an antique place which is also the psychologist in the town so right kind of different role. the beard really worked well for that and right <laughs> so that was nice um <laughs> and uh before that i just did a crazy movie called uh my redneck neighbors where I played the lead guy and not a comedy, real zany comedy. I don't know what's going to happen with that movie. So we'll see. Um, uh, and uh, there's a movie called charming the hearts of men that I shot in Atlanta last year that I think's getting close to finding some distribution. That's an interesting period piece uh, uh, about a woman who had a hand in uh, when they, you know, they wrote the all men should be created equal part to add the woman, the word woman in there too. Right. And uh, so, so she's a famous person in the South because of that. And so sort of her story. Um, and uh, that, that was, that was well, that had a budget and such. So I, I just don't know when it's going to get, when it's going to get picked up, but um, right. I think that's going to be a pretty good project. Right. Cool. That sounds lots. That sounds great. A little bit here, a little bit there. Keep, you know, keep working yeah. when you can, right? Yeah, absolutely. I say good work when you can get it. <laughs> <laughs> So I'd just like to wrap up um, yes. with my little section, which I call the oh, luggage, yeah. the luggage in the crypt. Yes. <laughs> so what would you like to take into the afterlife with you? Which yes. film would you like to well, take? Film, I guess, would be on the waterfront. Though there's um, certainly four or five other films, but that would be, uh, I'll, take, I'll take on the waterfront with me. Right, right. That's a great choice. It's been a contender. <laughs> story of my life you know <laughs> <laughs> but it's not just that it's that whole setup that just two people talking and you know the two of them acting the hell out of that scene is yeah it was a, a, a quick quick little great story i heard about that I don't know if it's true or not but maybe it is um uh so brando had this guy that was sort of his eyes on the set this, this right. actor who's also, you know, you know, a, a you know, dope fiend, you know, heroin addict. And so he took off to go score. And it was when he was shooting that scene and he kept doing the takes and it, he knew it wasn't right. He knew it wasn't right because I need another, I need another. He was just basically waiting for the guy to come back. Right. And the guy finally goes, back, he goes, okay, watch the scene, watch the scene. He does it. And then, you know, Brandon goes, what do you think? He's like, he's your brother, man. And then that's the take. Yeah. 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 It's an amazing moment. You see how he takes that moment you know where you like he sucks you can see that's what he takes in like i was i've been sold out by my own brother yeah yeah you know? yeah well you yeah. know too i mean yeah that if you on the top of like who would you like to work with in heaven throw him up there for sure 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sure we can arrange this. There's going to be a big movie set waiting for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm down. Bring me Ely Kazan. What, uh, what book would you take? Yeah, I'm not, I'll be honest that I'm not a huge, avid reader. Uh, you know, I'm just not. Um, uh, the last book I just read was about uh, restoring uh, airstreams. So that shows you where my head's at. Um, but the book I would take would be The Prophet by Cahil Gibran. Beautiful. A lovely slim volume, but with so much. But yeah, exactly. Has so much to offer to keep you on, you're talking about, you know, keep it on course in life, right? Yeah. That that book does that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm recommending it to teenagers all the time. Just just read it, see what you can get from it. Yeah. Great choice. Great choice. Like some Nietzsche or something, then it'll send you down the existential rabbit hole where I think I was reading Nietzsche when I was doing the burbs. That's probably why I got so lost. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, that I've never attempted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can handle that, but teenagers should never read that stuff. (laughs) What about a musical? What's the point of any of it, man? What's the point? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, here, get on with it. <laughs> what about a musical album? Dark Side of the Moon, Pink Floyd. Great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm I mean, not the other person that would come up with that either. I mean, it's the all-time concept selling album of all time. Yeah. But I, I guess, you know, that's a, it's about as good a rock uh, story, you know, story you're ever going to get. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just have to make that. Yeah, I did, it, you know, it's the album that was in all the, teen, you know, all your friends' bedrooms when you went yes. around to listen to records, that was definitely there uh, yeah. and chosen. What about a favorite food? Um, my mother's roast beef. Roast beef, potatoes, carrots. I would, think I would take my mom's roast beef with me. That's what I would take. If I could pick anything, that would be it. It's I get that. So good you drool thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You see, now you've immediately put me in the mind of my mother's apple suet. Which yeah, is basically, if your mom cooks something really great and that your mom did it and you've had it your whole life, that's something different than anybody else can ever yeah. do. For you. It's, yeah. it's, it's so far back into your memories. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, holds, it holds a different, it holds almost folklore or something. Yeah. 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 So. I'm just trying to think. Remembrance of times past. Yes. It's, it's the Madeleine cake. Yeah. It's just that yeah. moment. It takes you right back. Um, piece of visual art. Yeah, so uh, uh, any Monet water lily is the biggest one I could get a hold of. The one I remember in New York was five panels, like a story high. I'll take that with me. Yeah. That would do it. Yes. yes. That's one you know, you don't realize about art. Like you see it, you know, you see it on your computer or whatever, a Monet or whatever. But when you see it like that, you know, or a Rodin or something, mm. You know, you're just like, oh, it's like a whole, you see why it's famous in a way? Because it's yeah. like, when you see it in its real splendor, it's like, wow. Yeah. You know? yeah. So that's why it has to be the actual piece. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you can go and, st- yeah, it's like me going to the National Gallery to watch, look at um, the execution of Lady Jane Grey in the London National Gallery. And I just go mm. back and I just stare at that thing. And that's mm. one of the things I want to do when we're able to. Yes. Um, Yes. And um, last thing, one luxury. Yeah, the luxury for me, it may not be what you're looking for. I'm not really a luxury, luxurious kind of guy, but uh, to me, it would have to be a guitar. I'd have to be to take a guitar with me. You know? That's a thing of no practical purpose. 
it is an official de designation for a luxury, but I think a musical instrument. Make is... it like a 1956 Martin, then. That's pretty luxurious. That's like a right. $30,000 oh, yeah. guitar, baby boy. <laughs> <laughs> Not a luxury to me, man. Yeah, absolutely. Completely. Well, you know, the, one, the one thing I thought about your questions was that for the most part, they're, in my eyes, they're passive, meaning I'm watching, I'm, do, mm. I'm doing something, but I'm not doing something active. Uh -huh. right? All of them, even looking at the art. So for me, like that's, that doesn't, you know, in general, like that's all fine. But like, for me, it's like, what am I doing? Like, 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 like even, even when it comes to music, like I don't play a lot of other people's material. Maybe I should. So maybe I right. learned something. But what I really enjoy is writing a song that's what I really enjoy. Like that's more than recording, more than performing. It's the moment of creation. So it's a, it's a, it's a you know, just a little acoustic guitar in you and, and you can do something creative. Right. And for us guys like me and you, like we gotta be creative, right? If I couldn't, if I couldn't be doing something creative, not just surrounding myself by art, which is fine and good and damn yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. I don't just wanna, you know, watch on the waterfront i hope someday to make on the waterfront you know what i mean yes yeah no no i was talking to an author on the show the other day and we soon agreed that basically inside the crypt the walls are just going to be covered he will yeah. have, you know all yeah. right you're in the crypt well good i'm not that i guess i'm gonna have to get a little baby guitar then or you <laughs> oh it's a big crypt oh no oh, we're gonna, we're gonna, okay. oh yeah yeah no we'll you know we're talking okay okay pyramid good. of cheops here yeah okay. Then I gotta have an, I gotta have my axe then too to keep me keep past the hours, man. Right, right, done, absolutely done. <laughs> <laughs> this has been so much fun, Courtney. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. Wow, Malachi himself, that was so much fun. Next week, join me as I'm joined by the Creeper himself, Jonathan Breck from Jeepers Creepers. Until then, be safe and well. The Chattering Hour is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Jared Friedrich and Amanda Rome West, composer Kevin McLeod. 